Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, Dr. Brown Vincent. Thank you so much for joining me today for an episode of That Anthro Podcast. It really is an honor to have you here, and I'm really happy that I get the opportunity to briefly, you know, talk to you. So if you could introduce yourself to our listeners, kind of what you study and teach, and then we'll kind of dive more into the details. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Like you said, my name is Layla Brown Vincent. I am currently an assistant professor of Africana Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Uh, I spent the last year as a visiting research fellow at the Johannesburg Institute for Advanced Study, um, working on my first book project. It was only supposed to be a four-month fellowship that turned into a full year because of COVID, but that's a that's another thing. Um, and so mostly my research is on uh, Black left social movements um, in the U.S. South and in Venezuela and Cuba. And um, a lot of it is thinking about a sort of return to the intellectual and political canon of Pan-Africanism. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, When I was reading through your bio and to prepare for the episode, I was really drawn in and I just want to express how much I admire how you really connect your own family history and your own experiences as a Black woman to the issues and the studies of race and gender, both in the U.S. and Venezuela. I think it really adds to the impact and the relatability and makes your work that much more powerful. So I'd love to hear about your childhood. I understand growing up, your parents were quite politically active, which um, really helped shape your studies and focus on the Venezuelan revolution, correct? Yeah, absolutely. When I first went to graduate school um, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study, um, one of the conversations that I had with my father was, he was like, oh, well, you know, you should kind of pay attention to what's happening in Venezuela right now. And the reason why is because he said that Venezuela at that time, which was around like 2007, 2008, um, has the potential to look like or be what Cuba was to our generation for sort of Black people in the diaspora, um, particularly those on the left. Um, So kind of to go back to the question that you asked initially, um, both of my parents um, are, were, my mother passed away about two and a half years ago, but um, are members of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, um, as I am, GC, and my mother was one of the organizers for the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. And a lot of that came from actually, again, a, a family um, history of organizing. My father, one of my father's older brothers, um, they grew up in Chicago, uh, was one of the co-founders of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, It was around, he was around the same age as Emmett Till. Um, He tells the story of remembering, uh, learning about the death of Emmett Till. um, And that kind of took him into organizing as a young, young man, like around 14 years old. Um, First with CORE and then with SNCC and then the Black Panther Party and eventually to the All African People's Revolutionary Party uh, with Kwame Ture, who was was then known as Stokely Carmichael. Um, And so, you know, as a young person, I was raised uh, around an international- influences. Yeah, I was raised around an international community of activists. I mean, I was, even my name, I was um, named by my parents, um, South African and Palestinian friends. Um, Equally, they were working with the American Indian movement. Um, And so from a very young age, my 
perspective on activism and political organizing was always international. Um, even though I never left the country until I was in college. I was um, curious. I, yeah. 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 We can get into that later, but I want to talk about, you know, how it was to now to spend that time in South Africa. I'm sure you got to see some exciting things. Um, so in specific, what drew you, other than your dad's little mention, what drew you in further to kind of the Venezuelan connection, mm-hmm. sorry, the Venezuelan revolution and its connection to uh, similar social movements in the U.S.? Sure. So I did, when I was an undergrad, I actually, I was a Spanish in history. Um, yeah. And I was fortunate enough to do like several different uh, summer research programs. And one summer I did a summer research program um, at UCLA and I was working on um, black political exiles in Cuba. And as I was getting ready to go to grad school, one of the things that struck me is that most people who were interested in Afro-Latin communities predominantly did work in research on either um, Brazil, uh, the Dominican Republic, Cuba and maybe Colombia, although the types of research that happen in Colombia are a little bit different. And so, you know, in the same way that graduate students are always pushed to kind of think about something novel, I was like, okay, how do I continue my interest in Afro-Latin America without um, going to these same places um, that I think a lot of people tend to go? And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I just wanted to pursue Mm -hmm. a different angle. Um, And so actually in 2008, I was at Howard University and I stumbled on this conference, What's Up with Venezuela Now? And there were all these dark-skinned Afro-Venezuelans talking about how the Bolivarian Revolution had changed their lives. And so for me, it was kind of serendipitous because, you know, because I grew up in a political family, we spent a lot of time at Howard University, a lot of time in D.C. organizing on African Liberation Day and to kind of stumble upon that moment in that space for me kind of felt um like I said serendipitous it's like okay this is it um and then I actually realized in retrospect that when I was an undergrad my advisor um, Marco Polo Hernandez Cuevas he's an Afro-Mexican at North Carolina Central University had actually brought Chucho Garcia who's an Afro-Venezuelan scholar, activist, artist, diplomat, all these things had actually brought him to to NCCU and I went to see him speak but for whatever reason it didn't register with me at the time and so for me it it made sense um because there were already these international flows and dialogues that were already bringing black people in the U.S. and Afro-Venezuelans I think into community with each other and so it, it was a natural I think kind of progression for me. Yeah. And it's probably a space that you could really fit into well. And like I said, you know, connect to and have your own ideas. I think that Spanish, I'm really curious how that Spanish background like helped prepare you. I, um, all throughout my elementary and middle school years and then into high school did Spanish. And it's kind of this thing that I feel like I need to develop more as I continue in my studies. It's just not my top priority right now, but it's such a cool language. And even just being able to think in Spanish kind of, I feel like gives you this just a slight different perspective on people's stories because you can really get the full context especially when it comes to like ethnograph ethnographic research um so we were you were saying you received your BA from North Central University and then later your MA and PhD were in cultural anthropology so how do you feel like that Spanish and literature background prepared you for the that field of cultural anthropology Yeah. So, you know, it's funny what actually even brought me to, I mean, so like, I think like most students, I had taken Spanish language, you know, as a middle schooler, I even took AP Spanish as a high schooler, but most people who learn a second language know that no matter how much classroom time you spend with the language, until you get to live and speak, it's just not the same. Um, And so I was fortunate. I, I did a summer in Mexico, the summer after my freshman year of college. And then I did a semester in the Dominican Republic. Um, and those two things um, really, they, they, they set me on a path in a lot of different ways. Um, it's funny because the way I even came to Spanish as a major, um, I was actually, when I first went to college at North Carolina Central University, I was gonna be an English education high school teacher. And 
I took a Spanish class my first semester and the, the professor that I had at the time, uh, he basically said to me, mm, you kind of have an ear for this. Why don't you think about double majoring? And I was like, cool, sure. <laughs> and then when I had the opportunity to study abroad, the English department didn't necessarily want to give me credit for all of my time abroad. And so I started looking around at departments that would, and the history department was willing to do that. And so I actually even created my own major, which was Afro-Latin, which is like an Afro-Latin studies concentration, which is now an actually an official concentration at the school. But I was the, myself and my advisor at the time, uh, Josh Nadel, we kind of worked out a plan. Yeah, that's wonderful. That you made create it that. Yeah, they made it into a track. I should also say that even before that, one of the reasons why I decided to study, or two of the reasons why I decided to study Spanish, one, my father's a construction worker uh, in North Carolina, and he predominantly works with Mexican and other Central American populations. And so I think there was partially like an investment on his part for me to learn. But then I also, when I was in high school, I had volunteered in a special needs classroom. And I came across a student and this was a special needs classroom for like children with Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, um, many of whom were nonverbal. So these weren't necessarily like behavioral issues or anything. Like these were like cognitive development, de developmental difficulties. Um, and one of the students that was in the class, I kind of noticed that he didn't seem to have any of the, the, the developmental issues that the other students had. He just seemed to be afraid and quiet. And after some time, we actually discovered that he was um, an undocumented immigrant and that his parents were, you know, probably afraid to come to school. And he had been, you know, put in these special needs classrooms because no one, up. exactly. And so from it, I think my, my earliest sort of introductions to Spanish also had to do with particular um, experiences of inequality. So that, that already kind of took yeah. me down that path. Um, and then you know, it's just another way to, to unite to unite people with that language. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and then you know, once I got to college, I had very I had a really great time in Mexico. Like that was like my first time out of the country. It was a language school, no big deal. But the, my time in the Dominican Republic was very traumatic, very, very, very traumatic <laughs> uh, racially. Um, so much so that in, I mean, that was in two thousand six, and I was. I still don't want to go back to the Dominican Republic, but I was unwilling to even consider it um, for years because of that. However, one of the things that I really do appreciate, so I had two teachers when I was there, Blas Jimenez, who was a, a poet and a, a literary scholar, a famous Dominican literary scholar, and then another Juan Rodriguez, who was an anthropologist. Um, and they were two of our teachers. Um, and they actually, you know, helped me contextualize a lot of my experiences as a Black woman. Um, they also taught us a lot about the history, the political and racial histories um, and the contentions between the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and also between Blackness and mixedness or non yeah. whatever. Um, and so that's kind of also what made me begin to ask questions about the ways that race was, con was constructed uh, differently in the Latin American context than in the US context. And so I will say that in spite of the trauma of that experience, if had I not gone, I don't think I would have gone on the path that I went on um, in terms of studying. Yeah. And I'm glad that it sounds like you did have good experiences with teachers. Was it, it was more of um, like the, the social interactions that you were having. Okay. Yeah. That, Absolutely. well, you know, I think it's Central America in general, it has quite a, such a unique history and such a unique mix of people. One thing that I did want to clarify for our listeners, it's a word that you mentioned earlier that I just wanted to clarify the definition of is dias diaspora. And what that means in relation to uh, Afro-descendant people's histories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, the, the, the term diaspora, there are a lot of people who sort of, particularly the African diaspora, there are a lot of people who do work to theorize it. Um, Joseph Harris, Colin Palmer, um, Kim Butler. So there, there are a lot of different ways to sort of think about it. But one of the ways that Colin Palmer thinks about the diaspora, the African diaspora, is that he, he breaks them up into two major kind of time periods, which are the pre-modern and the modern diaspora, and then into sort of streams um, 
or after that. And so like one of the biggest ones he, he talks about is the sort of original human migration out of the continent mm. of Africa. And so we could argue that that's an African diasporic migration, even though there are a number of other kind of things that kind of fall out from that. So he, he lists that, but he doesn't spend a whole lot of time with that. Um, but then uh, he also talks about some of the sort of trading diasporas um, prior to, but the sort of most influential diaspora is the moment of the transatlantic slave trade, right? And there's also the trans-Saharan slave trade prior mm -hmm. to that. Um, and that is what he kind of constitutes as a modern diaspora. Um, and that is that people were forcibly dispersed from the continent of Africa all over the world. Um, and a lot of, you know, the way scholars study the diaspora, it has to do with a number of different types of relationships to whatever that original homeland is, right? So, you know, for people of African descent in the Americas who are the descendants of slaves, the relationship to the continent is often a kind of imagined one, right? Like not necessarily one where people have been able to travel back, have any kinds of uh, current relationships with people. So there, so one of the ways that they understand it is that there is this, uh, there is this relationship to the to the uh, homeland, which is either real or imagined. Um, there's usually some types of um, kind of stories or mythologies or histories that connect. Um, but then there's also usually a contentious relationship to the host land. And I think everywhere across the world where we see people of African descent, the relationship to the host lands tend to be contentious, um, which is why we are still having questions about sort of blackness and second class citizenship to this day. So for the most part, there's the easy way of explaining that is like, you know, people who are the descendants of ancestors mm -hmm. who were born on the continent of Africa. Thank you. I think that was a, that was a perfect description of it for everyone. Um, and, you know, I always appreciate discussing other scholars work and bringing that into support, you know, the information that we're talking about always here for shout outs. I'm like, yes, name drop, <laughs> name drop all the wonderful people that, you know, have worked so hard to get all this research. Um, so one of the points that I'd love to talk about from one of your articles called Seeing It for Wearing It and Autoethnography as a Black Feminist Mythology. So I kind of want to quote it just because I know that not everyone's going to be able to take the time to read it. And I think this particular question is really powerful to actually hear. And then I would love if you could just kind of address what you did in the article, but explain to me kind of how you've approached these questions. So you said, I began by asking myself, what did it mean that mass social movements were flourishing in both the United States and Venezuela? How significant was the fact that both countries were expecting these up were experiencing these upheavals under the leadership of their first respective self-identified Black Afro presidents? And perhaps most fundamentally, how did these Black Afro peoples, particularly women and youth, become politicized and radicalized to the point of action? You know, one of the things that, that I struggled with as an anthropology graduate student was the scope of the project that I was interested in, right? Um, and I think, you know, I think we all experience that in graduate school. I don't know any of us who have a conversation with our advisor who is not like, hey, scale it back. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you can only do so much. However, what I think that I realized is that because of my own uh, upbringing, politically and otherwise, the questions that I was, was asking made sense to me and I needed to figure out why they didn't seem to be as intelligible to other people when I was trying to explain them. And so one of the answers to that for me was autoethnography. Um, and so I felt like um, the best way to make the questions that I was asking and make the connections that I was asking make sense was through partially telling my own story, um, which was both, I think, a, a question of epistemology, right? Like how I've come to know and understand the things that I know, um, and also a question of scale. So, you know, like, you know, in anthropology, people like to claim expertise over a particular geographic area. That is a claim that makes me very uncomfortable. I'm born and raised in the US my whole life and I don't know anything about the Dakotas, Wyoming, you know, Idaho, Iowa. Mm -hmm. So it would it would be very <laughs> difficult for me to claim, you know, any kind of expertise about the the United States of America. And so the same for me is true when I think about Venezuela. I'm not an expert in Venezuela. And in fact, I don't even think about myself as a person who studies Venezuela necessarily. I am interested in the political struggles of people of African descent 
And I'm interested in those particular struggles where they are struggling for a vision of socialism. And that's what brought me to Venezuela. That's what brought me to Cuba. And so for me, the questions drove the research as opposed to some sort of geographic or even um, traditionally cultural questions in that kind of sense, right? I'm, I was fundamentally interested in political questions. Um, and so, you know, that, that moment, right? Like, you know, one of the things that I encountered when I first started doing field work in Venezuela was that people would often say to me, before Hugo Chavez, there were no Black people here. And like, WTF, what do you mean there were no Black people here? Um, but what that but what that actually signaled was that there was something about Chavez's public declaration of himself as an Afro-Indigenous person that created an opening for a Black identity to be seen as mm -hmm. with some sort of legitimacy within the country, right? And so for me, I started to, and, and because he was attempting to envision what he called 21st century socialism or Bolivarianismo or what others would later call Chavismo, you know, I really started to ask questions about the relationship of Blackness to Chavismo or Bolivarianismo. Um, and, you know, and also, you know, being this particular moment in history, because I was also interested in what was happening in the US. I mean, this was also the same time that the Black Lives Matter movement was growing. People were asking questions in the US about what was happening in Venezuela. People in Venezuela were asking me questions about what was happening in the US. And so again, through my own source of experiences being involved in political organizations in the US and in Venezuela, once again, it made sense to me to make the connections between these two. Um, so for me, that, that I mean, not even in any particularly sophisticated way. It just it that was the only way to make sense of it for me was to to um, to utilize autoethnography in that sense. And I think even in terms of method, um, because I would also say that you know the U.S. and Venezuela have a contentious relationship, and you know I'm doing field work and people are seeing me, an anthropologist who has historically been understood as an agent of the state the CIA, right? Not necessarily working in the interest of Venezuelan people in this moment. Um, like, what are you doing here? Why do you wanna do this research? And a part of the reason, a part of the thing that even allowed me access that even helped dissipate some of the suspicion that people had of me was my family's political background, was knowing people that I was related to. That's literally what get, um, allowed me to gain access to certain spaces. So I think both from the perspective of writing up my research and as a method, it was really important, I think, to be honest about how much of Layla made the research possible, right? This is, I wouldn't say that the, the research that I did is research that could be replicated by some, by some other people. Some people it could be, but not necessarily, it's not just, it's not replicable by anybody. And that's because I think we have to be honest as anthropologists and people who do um, social science and humanistic research that the minute that we step on the scene, our, our presence impacts the way people interact with us and it dictates how they answer questions. And, you know, we, we can never get around that. And so we always have to interrogate that. And so for me, autoethnography is that without the, the quote unquote dismissive navel gazing, right? It's not about navel gazing. It's actually about situating myself um, in a critical way. That was, I think that's a very unique perspective to have and to, to, but I think you're right, that honest disclosure, it adds to your research, it makes it relatable, and it makes your research so much more impactful. Um, so particularly what I want to know is that last question, why are particularly women and youth being becoming politicized and radicalized to the point of action in both the United States and Venezuela? Absolutely. You know, so when Chavez came to power in 98, he was, I would say, hmm, maybe liberal, progressive, but not quite radical or revolutionary. Um, it was not until uh, the 2002 coup attempt against him um, that he really shifted towards the left. And one of the things that really pushed him towards the left um, one, you know, had to do with the kind of growing tensions between, you know, Venezuela and the state, but it also had to do with understanding who his base was. And he came to understand that it was predominantly women 
young people and people of color, in that case being Afro-descended, indigenous, or, you know, mixed people in, in the Venezuelan context. And so yet again, there is this you know, direct connection between the, the increased radicalization of the Bolivarian revolution and the incorporation of women and youth's issues, right? And so, you know, a lot, and, and I think the same thing happened with the movement for Black Lives in the US, right? Mm -hmm. We saw for the most part, um, particularly Black and women of color and queer women out, queer women and queer people, queer identified people um, in the front of those movements in the US. Um, and so, I, I mean, I really think that this particular moment allowed that kind of opening. And I also think that 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 the position of um, being able to take advantage of the structures of society less and less by virtue of your race or your gender or your class, I think, you know, it doesn't always do this, but I think it more often than not pushes those sub-demographics of people into a slightly more radical position, right? I don't, I wouldn't say, I don't want to make any kind of essentialist claims that all, all women are revolutionary, all queer people, because we know that's not true. But I think there is something about the sort of material lived circumstances of womanhood, of femaleness, yeah. of youth, the precarity of those positions that I think make those demographics of people um, often blackness, indigeneity, make us ask different kinds of questions about how we relate to the state. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what was really interesting to me in the Venezuelan case, which was not the case in the U.S., was the way that Venezuela as a, the, the Bolivarian revolution as a state was at least attempting to struggle with those grassroots movements, right? Like, the, you know, the, the state powers in the U.S. are so strong that yeah, the, the government has contend with Black Lives Matter, but I wouldn't necessarily say um, social movements in the U.S. are really, really shaping the sort of national politic in the way that I think we would want it to. Yeah. Although, whereas I think in Venezuela, it was different. I mean, a lot of, I mean, I think that even to this day, even as the economy is struggling in Venezuela, um, even as people are, you know, really suffering because of the sanctions, the reason why the Bolivarian Revolution has maintained its base is because they have always maintained that in spite of its imperfections, we know this particular regime to be one that will struggle with us, that we can that we can push back against, that we can contest, that we can make some types of claims on. And so I think that there's a particular kind of dynamic or you know dialectical interplay between social movements, grassroots social movements in, in Venezuela. Um, and the state. And, and it particularly happens to be led by the groups of people who have historically been disenfranchised, right? Because prior to Chavez coming to power, you know, Venezuela was often understood as what they called an exceptional democracy, right? They had oil, like wealthy people from the U.S. could go there. They thought it was safe. And it wasn't until 1989 when the Caracaso happened that Venezuela started being you know, or Caracas in particular, started being known as one of the top 10 most dangerous cities in the world, right? And that had everything to do with this fear of, of, of sort of brown and black peril. When, when the masses of brown and black people in the country rioted, right, came down out of, out of the barrios into the city after these sort of major structural adjustment programs in 89, that's when people started imagining Venezuela as this dangerous place. That's also what set the stage for Chavez's election later on, right? So all of these things I think are connected and like we can and we can even keep going back from mm -hmm. there, but I think it's important to make those connections um, that it has been though that demographic. You peep women, young people, and people of color who have continued to push yeah. Venezuela to the left. Mm -hmm. People that have been oppressed and that were trying to, you know, push back. You're a very powerful storyteller. I'm sitting here kind of like in a trance. That's that's a very good quality to have, especially obviously for a podcast when it is just going to be audio. Um, <laughs> so I kind of want to switch gears a little bit to talk about, you know, the other really important part of your job, which is teaching. So I'm really mm -hmm. curious to hear a bit about, you know, your teaching philosophy, um, maybe like a favorite class or topic to teach that you have. Mm -hmm. So it's funny, I, when I was interviewing for jobs a couple of years ago, one of the things that I mentioned, in, and particularly in an anthro job, because I'm in Black studies or Africana studies now, and I think in, in Africana studies and ethnic studies and women's studies, 
those are disciplines that are like completely open to all kinds of pedagogic styles. And, you know, like nobody's going to shun you when you say you do different things in the classroom. Anthropology, depending on who you come into contact with, can yeah. still be quite conservative as a discipline. A little bit. So one of the things I said in my interview was that I don't lecture. And one of the, the older faculty members, um, as I was interviewing, said, you don't lecture. So what do you do? I said, I, I interact with my students. Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't like it when people just talk at me. I lose interest. And so I kind of have a, a rule of thumb when I teach that if I find myself talking for more than 10 minutes at a time, I just stop talking. And I just kind of turn it on to the class, um, you know? And so, I mean, in general, um, I try, like there's no distinction between a lecture and a seminar for me. Um, I think it's always important. Now, to be, to be fair, I've not been at a place where I had to teach like a 200 student class, right? The, the yeah. biggest kind of class I've had has been 60 students, um, which I can still kind of maintain this. I don't know what it would look like if I had to do that. Um, but that's also why I've kind of chosen the type of places that I've been at because I like that that size of a classroom yeah, it's another um, obstacle exactly um so you know for me that critical dialogue is always important um I also treat um you know students experiences as legit points of inquiry like the legit places to enter into the conversation right so like where some faculty members might be like, go back to the text. I do go to the text, but I also think it's important for students to be able to say, this reminds me of this time. This makes me think about this because to me, that's a way of, um, in, uh, this is a way of uh, having a sort of embodied experience with the, with the information that makes it last more. Um, and it makes it stick with you. You remember exactly. if you can connect a reading to a lived experience, it's going to stay with you and you'll be able to interpret it in a, in a completely different way. I tr and I try to use um, varieties of sources. You know, I use text, obviously, but I use speeches, documentaries, increasingly more podcasts because there are so many out there. Um, and you know, this semester in particular has been really cool because because of COVID, because of all the digital stuff, I have like just switched up gears all the way. And so one, so I did two things this semester. One, um, I decided to crowdsource a portion of my syllabus. And so what that meant for me was in the first week of class, I asked students to think about um, the subject matter for the class and then kind of scout, like go out. If, if there's anything you've ever wanted to read, but you didn't get around to that pertains to the class, something that you wanted to watch, something that you want to listen to, come make a case for it in the first week of class. And then I'll do my best to incorporate at least a certain percentage of the students' suggestions into the syllabus. So that I did on the front end. And then on the back end, in terms of final projects, particularly for like my lower level courses, um, I told my students, the final project is up to you. You have to come up with a, with a rubric for how I evaluate it. And that, and so, and as I told them, for those of you who want to go on to grad school, obviously a paper makes sense because, you know, you're going to need a writing sample. I said, mm -hmm. but for those of you who aren't necessarily thinking about grad school, it could be a play. It could be a podcast. It could be a board game. It could be, you know, it, it, I even have one student who's like, who's an artist and wants to do a mural. And, you know, she was like, <laughs> the student asked me, she was like, um, you know, how do you feel about tagging? I was like, I don't know. Don't, don't ask me those questions. Just, just do what you're going to do. And, yeah. uh, let's and then oh, and we'll, <laughs> and we'll see the end result. <laughs> just don't ask me so I can exactly. have deniability. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, so, you know, like, and, and I do think, I, I, I haven't decided yet if that's something I'll continue post-pandemic, um, but I do think it has um, increased investment in the class. I also do playlists. So, like, I spend the, so I have a, a, a what do you call it, a, again, a crowdsource playlist for the classes that I have. And the first five minutes of class, I play, like, two songs from the playlist, and I just let students constantly kind of build into them. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I think the, the easiest way to get students into stuff is to make them feel like they have something at stake as opposed to just being talked to. And then to answer quickly the other part of your question, the class that I enjoy teaching the most, I teach like Blacks in Latin America regularly. I teach a feminisms course intro. But when I was a grad student at Duke, I taught this first year seminar reading autobiographies of radical women of color. 
Um, and so all we did was read autobiographies the whole semester. And so we read like Asada Shakur, Angela Davis, obviously, but then we read like Rigoberta Menchu, we read Maxine Hong Kingston, we read Lakota Woman. Um, and one of the things that um, the students did as their final project was um, an extended oral history interview with, with a so, so for the students who identified as students of color, they interviewed a woman in their family. And the students who didn't identify as students of color, I asked them to find a woman of color in the community to interview. What I found really impactful about this is that a number of my students were either first or second generation immigrants. And a lot of them had never spoken to their mothers or their grandmothers about their experiences immigrating. And so much of their relationship changed as a result of that final project. And so for me, those are the kinds of things that I find useful and valuable even beyond, you know, publications, right? Like yeah. the, having some sort of meaningful um, takeaway is, mm -hmm. is so important to me. And so that I, I enjoyed that class, I think the most of all of my classes. I mean, as a student, I'm an undergraduate student myself. I appreciate everything you just said on so many levels. I think just the idea that you allow your students to be creative, but still give them the autonomy to say, hey, this has to be structured. So create the structure to fit your creative interests or your what you need. Like you said, even if it does need to be a writing sample for grad graduate school, that's mm -hmm. still fitting their interests and fitting their needs. And mm -hmm. just the idea um, that you can produce scientific, cultural, academic knowledge in other forms other than traditional ways is so important and I was just on a panel talking about this with some other anthropologists and media and how we really want to start seeing graduate pro projects like no more theses like we want to see like some cool creative interpretive like podcast or something mm -hmm. not that that's necessarily an outright like attainable yeah. thing but you know I, so I think you're totally on the right path for that and I'm sure that it helps you learn so much more about your students and have meaningful, engaging classes with them. I mean, even just seeing the mural of someone, like you just learn so much about their artistic ability and creative, the way they express themselves. It's so, so amazing. I'm so glad that you get to have that and that you're, you know, that you're doing that. No, absolutely. I mean, I always tell them, one of the things I also tell my students um, is that this, my class is not designed for you to come in and ask me questions. You all are required to interact horizontally and with me. And then also, I don't have all the answers. I'm here to facilitate things mm -hmm. and hopefully we can, we can come up with some things together, but I don't have the answers to your questions. And, and because, you know, the biggest question I want to answer is how do we get free? And if I had the answer to that, we would be free. Yeah. <laughs> and until I have the answer to that, we, what we're doing is hopefully some kind of incremental step towards that. And that's something mm -hmm. that we have to put together. Like, I don't have the answers. And so, you know, I, I'm always, you know, excited by the stuff that my students teach me, whether it be some, you know, obscure historical fact or literally like I didn't know anything about GIS software until I was a postdoc at Bucknell and I was trying to get my students to do a mapping project and so like a lot of like, we're learning this together you know so yeah. all of those kinds of things I think you know are I mean that's what we're supposed to be doing that if like if we're challenging ourselves as students and faculty in a university setting what's what's the point what are we doing yeah I'm so glad to hear to hear that I think it's that's just that's where we should all be heading you know academic and mentoring wise I think it's super important so what is one piece of advice that you would give to any student particularly a student of color but in general who intend to pursue a career similar to yours <sighs> I mean if I'm honest everything has been sort of happenstance <laughs> so you know I have just kind of followed the thing. And I will say this um, you know, people always talk about mentorship, but it's so, so, so important. I mean, when I went to college, you know, I went to an HBCU, North Carolina Central University is a historically black college in Durham, North Carolina. Like I said, I went with the intention of being a high school English teacher and it was faculty, it was teachers who took interest in me and said, do this, do this. I mean, because of my, because of my faculty mentorship there, I did a summer research program every summer. 
I studied abroad three times and none of those things were like things I was even considering. So, I mean, for undergraduates and graduates, I would say, you know, when, when, I mean, obviously you have to seek out mentorship, but when you find somebody who is willing to give you time um, and who seems to be interested in you, not in just telling you what to do, but who's interested in you, take advantage of that. Like mm -hmm. suck all of, like get into that. Um, because, you know, I don't, you know, we're not designed to do this thing alone, you know, and if it weren't for people, you know, I mean, you're your own person, so you can always say no, but you know, you want to be open to whatever people want to give you. Um, I think also in a more practical route, like, you know, when my students of color say that they want to go to grad school, I'm always really cautious and apprehensive about advising my students of color to go into master's programs. And that, it doesn't have anything to do with the degree. It has everything to do with the structure of funding. Most master's programs are not funded. And most students of color don't have the luxury of continuing to take out, you know, more and more loans for a, for a master's degree that's not necessarily going to um, shift. So what I will say is that if you decide to pursue grad, a graduate career, do that because you have a burning interest in a thing, not because you think it's going to make you money, because that is not necessarily the thing. And I, you know, because I will always say like, you know, it's not that I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say like, I'm struggling, but I'm also like, you know, there are other things that if I had different kinds of morals and values, I could do to make more money. Mm -hmm. But what I enjoy about this, I like, so I knew from very early on that I wanted to keep traveling. I wanted to continue to meet new people and learn new things. And for me, the university does that, whether y'all get to leave or not, right? Like we get some kind of change every three to four months. We get a new class, a new classroom, a new set of material, new people, you know, like, so for me, that is, that's the, that's enough regularity and enough change to keep me interested. And that's what I love about being in the academy because there are a lot of things to not like about it. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's the people. Um, and the and the opportunity for kind of growth and change. So like I would say, you know, pursue intellectual research because you have a passion for it, not because mm -hmm. you think it's gonna pay you something. And 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 I and I say this not in a business sense, but network. Not network to like, you know, give me access, but network so that you know have people who challenge your thinking, who expand, who who give you access to things, who you all like challenge one another, you introduce each other to new readings, to new things to Inspire listen to. you, yeah. Exactly. exactly. I think that my, I'm gonna answer the question myself. One, my piece of advice for any um, teachers listening is the music, to have a playlist and to play <laughs> two classes, to play two songs at the beginning of class because one of my other uh, professors uh, Professor uh, Daniel Kieran at UCSB does that in her okay. classes. And, you know, until you mentioned that, it was all, she wouldn't consistently do it, but it was always the highlight of all of our days. Just this little okay. burst of energy, get you refreshed, especially if you've had another class before, reset, get you excited, a little jiggle, loosen up. You know, some of us would show our dogs on camera. She has a dog. She'd show our dog. Just that little, little bit, especially while we're online. But even in class, as students are walking in, um, my other professor, Dr. McClure, we're learning about um, fermentation. And she said she had this song that she wanted to play as we walked into the room and she was going to make us sourdough bread. And um, to explain, you know, to talk about fermentation and how, yeah. how ancient peoples would, you know, utilize this in bread making. And she was like, but you know what? Hum it in your head while during this lecture, because it was an asynchronous lecture. She was like, but you should do it. You should be thinking about the song right now. It's okay. so fun. And it just really helps engage, but also lighten up a, a lecture. Like you said, if it is, you know, just having someone talk at you. So I think that's, that's what I think is something everyone should be doing. Absolutely. I mean, I enjoy it. I just, you know, yeah. it's, it's a nice way to get going. And I see my students sometimes like singing in the camera. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah it's fun. Um, so I'd love to hear about your trip to South Africa. And, you know, did, I hope you got to kind of explore around a little bit. I know my, my grandma spent some time. She's lived all over. She lived in Nigeria. She lived has traveled to Chad and she went on vacation to South Africa more recently as she's been older and she just 
raved about going on safari she just couldn't believe mm-hmm. it so I yeah. hope you know maybe you got to do some fun things as well as you know being also at the institute there hmm. well you know so I went to lockdown um and uh South Africa's lockdown was particularly intense um you know we were you could go to the doctor and to the grocery store in that first lockdown like people weren't even allowed to walk their pets in the first in the first lockdown um so unfortunately in the first half of the year i mean i just saw the i just saw the walls of the um of the what do you call it the compound that i was living in but one of the things again which you know kind of takes me back to the last comment that i really appreciated about that is because the the fellowship included what 10 or 12 writers and we were a combination of creative and academic writers um and so it was really and so we were doing like weekly seminars with each other sharing which was already an expectation of the fellowship um but then once the lockdown happened you know they were much more informal which was actually kind of nice um as opposed to these kind of outward facing programs and you know i just i can't i can't begin to over to overstate um the amount of impact being in such close quarters for such a long time um with scholars and other kinds of writers you know helped me both to develop a writing practice um to expose me to to new thinkers um and then and even just just great friendships um now you know sort of later on in the year i got to do a little bit more traveling but still not out of the country i got to go to durban to go to cape town all of which was cool. But I think the most kind of impactful thing that I experienced was actually watching the crappy way that the U.S. handled the pandemic from outside of the country, right? And this is not I at all- I can only to, imagine. Not at all to, to make light of any of the suffering that people experience because it has been horrific. Um, but, you know, to always, you know, the, the U.S. kind of occupies this space in the kind of global imagination as this, this place of, of superiority, right? And in by all for all intents and purposes, the U.S. was the shithole of the world during the pandemic, right? Still um, didn't do great. <laughs> no, I mean, really, yeah. continues to be, right? Yeah. And so to, you know, ask these kind of questions about what does it mean to be, you know, one of, among the most, one of the most developed nations in the world and to be suffering, for people to suffer so much through, and even now, to me, it's even worse now because we understand a lot more about what COVID is and the fact that people are still dying yeah. of COVID is really quite ridiculous. Um, and even, even as the vaccines roll out, right? Like, I don't know how much you um, follow Cuba, but Cuba has four vaccines uh, in trial, right? Right now. But one of the things that's crazy about Cuba's vaccine trial is that Cuba does not have enough sick people in the country to run an effective trial. So they've had to outsource the trial, right? Because literally, I think in the for, in the last year, I think they've had less than two hundred deaths. Now, obviously, the country's not as big as the U.S., mm-hmm. but still, less than two hundred deaths. Even oh, Venezuela, yeah. even Venezuela, for all of its economic turmoil at this particular moment, has had less than fifteen hundred deaths. Right. So, I mean, you know, there, there, and so again, for me, there, that begs the question. What are these countries that are at least experimenting with socialism, social medicine, social education, doing that is so much better for the for their population than what's happening in the U.S. Right? Because it doesn't it doesn't matter how developed we are if that development is unevenly um, unequally accessible, right? Yeah. Inequally accessible, um, and people are dying and suffering. And think about how many countries across the world, you know, implemented plans to make sure people didn't lose their jobs or people didn't yeah. lose their housing or people maintain health care. The U.S. guaranteed none of that. These people yeah. are still bickering and quibbling over $1,400 at this moment, you yep. know? <laughs> so. Our health care system was already so broken. And then this just exposed how it was completely inadequate and how, just economically unstable our country is when any mass event happens i mean even texas right now with power outages people are starving and you know it's serious regardless and just a lack of government intervention that actually does anything 
but uh, you know I just I have to have hope for the future because I think that this round of election already was a signal that America is hopefully ready to continue to keep moving forward and to keep progressing and making things more equal but I mean I just watched a documentary on different healthcare systems and Taiwan's healthcare systems looking pretty nice right now I mean most of these listen the U.S. is is, is, in terms of healthcare it is not the place that you want to replicate it it, it ain't teaching no lessons except for what not to do yeah (laughs) literally literally. So, so yeah for sure um I want to quickly ask did you for the second half, get to go out of your compound in South Africa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah sure. I got to, so I went to <laughs> Durban around October and then my birthday is in December. So I went to Cape Town. Um, Cape Town was, you know, was nice. I went to Robben Island um, and one, it was actually, I don't know if you've heard of Robert Sabukwe, but he's one of the not often mentioned, mentioned um, South African freedom and he was a member of the Af- uh, the, um, the Pan-African Congress. Sorry, I was getting ready to say ANC, which is not the case. Um, but, you know, you know, a lot of the story about Robin Island centers around sort of Mandela's experiences there. But, um, you know, Sabukwe was one of those figures who was deemed even more dangerous um, because of his ideas. Um, than Mandela was, and so to, I did, and I was not actually aware of the nature of his imprisonment on Robben Island. So that was a really um, impactful experience for me. And it was also it also so his birthday is December fifth. So there were also community things that were kind of happening around that time. Um, so yeah, that the the experience that it was nice to finally get out of there. I had all these grand plans of all the traveling out do all over the continent and you know yeah corona (laughs) i'm glad you got to do at least do a little bit before you had to leave so then it wasn't completely like oh i got to go to this beautiful place and not even leave my complex but yeah corona has really required all of us to be flexible and i think it's okay i think it's made me a little more peaceful of a person Mm, yeah or at least more like ready for unexpected things I mean, I think there's a lot of things to gain from this, you know, I, you know, and I also feel like, but there's also, you know, there are people, there are the silent ways that people are struggling because, you know, there's the, there's the staying at home for the sake of your physical health, mm-hmm. but then there's also, you know, people are struggling with their mental health because of their inability to make human connections. And so yeah. like, there's a, there's a toss up between the two. Um, and there's only so much that video chat does. Like we, oh, we're, yeah. we need touch, we need context. Yes. for me um I'm gonna cut this out of the episode but going back to work was I live alone I have my dog though so she's she's a wonderful companion but going back to work not just the aspect of working but just interacting with my coworkers has made me so happy I can't even begin to explain like how much more engaged and alive I feel because I can at least go and just sit at the post office with my coworkers and talk (laughs) oh it's real I mean it's yeah you know like I mean I I would say that because I was on that in that compound with 12 other people I did not experience the loneliness of lockdown really until I came back to the states Mm -hmm. because you know I live alone here and it's only been a month for me. I can only imagine, you know, what it was like for folks when the lockdown was really, really heavy and yeah. you know, for a month. So, you know, I, yeah. I can't even complain. Really. It, <laughs> it was a long summer, but adopting my dog in June was definitely the best decision I've made because she's made lockdown much easier and been able to focus on her needs, you know, as well, because she was kind of came from you know, had a rough life. So it's more like, I'm like, okay, I take care of you. And then we're going to get through this together. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But it's not, you know, having something else to care for is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. That was such a wonderful interview and I can't wait for everyone to hear it. Thank I'm going to stop her.